the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us, along with James Blend, our producer, Clark Hilton, our engineer, and Dan Rice, who's given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. And I have to tell you, that's a big deal because Dan is retired. He spends a lot of time in his office slash music room and has deprived himself of that opportunity so that I could use this space to do the show. So I really am very grateful to uh, Mr. Rice. Well, today on the program, we're going to, of course, cover the day's headlines. We're going to anticipate the Trump trial 2.0, how the second uh, impeachment trial will be different from the first. And we're also going to uh, share a classic interview with Colin Smith. He's the author of Heaven So Near, So Far, the story of Judas Iscariot, Christian. So this is going to be an interesting conversation that's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, for those of you who follow, you know, current events, you know that Tampa Bay, the Buccaneers quarterback Tom Brady is out at the mountaintop again and alone. He completed 21 of 29 passes for 201 yards with three touchdowns in the Buccaneers 31 to 9 victory over the Kansas City Chiefs in Super Bowl 50 on Sunday night at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa, Florida. Well, it was quite the game to watch, although a little boring, and that would certainly reflect the halftime entertainment from my perspective anyway. Well, for his performance in the big game, Brady was honored as the game's MVP. Everyone kind of expected that would be a Mahomes thing, but Brady, who is 43, is the first player over 40 to win championship game series MVP in any of the four major North American professional sports leagues. <clears throat> and that includes the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, and the MLB. He certainly made history. Well, with that win, the Buccaneers won their first Super Bowl since 2002. They became the first team to play and win a Super Bowl in their home stadium. Brady, as I mentioned, completed 21 of 29 passes for 201 yards with three touchdowns in the Buccaneers, 31-9 victory over the Kansas City Chiefs in Super Bowl 50. Well, for his performance, uh, he was honored as the um, uh, the MVP. Well, uh, with the win, the Buccaneers won their first Super Bowl since 2003. And Brady, the oldest player to ever play in a Super Bowl, came away with his seventh championship. That's surpassing the Pittsburgh Steelers and New England Patriots for the most Super Bowls in NFL history. It also broke a tie that he held with three members of Vince Lombardi's great Green Bay Packers team in the 1960s. Fuzzy Thurston of Hall of Famers Herb Adderley and Forrest Gregg, which included the first two Super Bowls. Well, Brady was already regarded as the greatest quarterback to ever play the game, and with this victory, it only cements his legacy even further. And he's indicated he fully intends to try to get back there in 2022. Well, the U.S. recorded fewer than 100,000 new COVID-19 cases on Sunday for the first time in months. Well, just over 96,000 new cases were identified on Sunday, a decrease from the 113,927 reported on Saturday. That's according to the COVID Tracking Project. 
Now, this was the first time since the 2nd of November that fewer than 100,000 new COVID cases were reported. Well, the data on Sunday was missing updates from a handful of states because some don't regularly report on the weekend, while others were having technical difficulties. But still, the recent numbers could be argued as a positive trend. Well, data from the COVID tracking project showed that new cases, hospitalizations and deaths all dropped last week. Thank you, Jesus. Well, for the seventh day period running January 28th through the 3rd of February, weekly new cases were down more than 16% over the previous week and dropped below a million for the first time since the week of November 5th. Um, That's uh, according to the organization last Thursday. Well, this is still an astonishing number of new cases a week, but far better than nearly 1.8 million cases reported the week of January 14th. Well, top Democrats are poised to introduce legislation that aims to provide $3,600 per year for millions of families that have children under the age of six as part of President Biden's $2 trillion coronavirus relief package, according to a report on Sunday. Now, I want to pause for just a moment and apologize for my scratchy voice. At some point in the next couple of weeks, I'll explain the full saga that would uh, explain my absence my raspy voice and what's going on here, but for today, and I don't know from one day to the next how scratchy I'm going to be, but that should uh, get a little bit better as the program goes on. But again, I apologize and thank uh, uh, my technical team, particularly Clark Hilton, for trying to make it sound a little better than it actually is. But I assure you that I'm on the mend and uh, this should not be a factor. I'm hoping and praying in the days ahead. Well, in other news, the Washington Post reported that it obtained a 22-page bill set to be introduced on Monday, today. The paper said that under the plan, families with children under six would receive $3,600 per child from the Internal Revenue Service. Families with older children could receive $3,000. The amount depends on last year's earnings. Now, where does that money come from? From whose pocket? Uh, into whose pocket, because, of course, the internal revenue doesn't generate income. It just redistributes it. Well, the Washington Post reported that there are a lot, there's lots at stake, rather, for Democrats regarding the legislation. And its success or failure could have ramifications for the congressional elections in 2022. And yes, sadly, there will be congressional uh, elections in 2022 This could affect so many families. The bill is expected to hit resistance among Democrats. Well, under the House Democrats' plan, the amount would vote for individual parents earning $75,000 yearly and couples pulling in $150,000. Now, all families would receive the full amount, even if they owe no federal income taxes, and payments to families would be made monthly. Well, in other developments, progressives are slamming the president's $1,400 stimulus checks as too small. Republicans put Democrats on the spot over stimulus checks and taxes and hours long vote Orama. We'll be hearing more about that later. <clears throat> well, Texas Governor Abbott is working on legislation to prevent social media platforms from canceling conservative speech. And yes, there is an effort to do just that. And oil prices near their highest level since the beginning of the pandemic, according to the Washington, or I should say the Wall Street Journal. Well, the impeachment trial of citizen Donald Trump begins tomorrow. Uh, Florida Congressman Bill Posey says now that President Trump's term is ended, a private citizen, the impeachment articles are irrelevant and the case is moot. 
Well, that may be his opinion, but tomorrow there will be a trial of a sort. Well, the vice president and sitting federal civil office holders. Additionally, the Constitution prescribes punishment that shall not go beyond removal from office with a possibility of being disqualified from holding office in the future. Since President Trump no longer holds office, the penalty, if convicted, is meaningless, he argues. It's politics at its worst and will only serve to further divide the nation. Well, one story claims that um, a Biden executive order will block foreign religious leaders who don't toe the line on LGBTQ plus issues of most concern to human rights advocates uh, around the world is the provision of $10 million in the upcoming fiscal year to fund Global Equality Fund. That will allow the U.S. government to blacklist foreign religious leaders who speak out in favor of the natural family and against LGBT ascendancy. Now, these human rights advocates could be blocked in the same way certain Russian oligarchs are blocked from entering the United States. So holding a traditional value as a foreign religious leader could ban you from the country. I'll ponder that for a moment. Meanwhile, protesters harassed Senator Hawley's family at their home. This is becoming something of a trend. The couple also claims the group vandalized their property. They have filed a criminal complaint against the leader of the protest. And President Biden's orders, uh, or rather has ordered the Fed to stop causing illegal immigrants stress when they lie. When a further reversal of Trump policies, the administration has ordered immigration officials to stop warning illegal migrants caught in trying to scam the system that they might face deportation because it causes undue stress. Well, then there's this from Breitbart. U.S. President Joe Biden signed an executive order on Thursday that denies state and local governments any authority to reject the drop off of refugees into their towns and communities. I'm a little confused about what's going on in the world right now. Thankfully, I know where to go for answers. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder, later in the program, we're going to hear a classic interview from Colin Smith, Heaven So Near, So Far. So stick around for that. Also want to let you know, hope for this present crisis. Dr. Michael Youssef of Leading the Way has a new book releasing soon, Hope for This Present Crisis. This month, you can pre-order Dr. Youssef's book. Uh, The book does not release until the 2nd of March, but you can pre-order your copy now. Receive a pre-order bonus download. Just go to kpdq.com. Look for Hope for This Present Crisis to pre-order your copy of this important book. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Monday edition of The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the program, we'll share a classic interview, so stick around. Well, coronavirus has parents losing faith in public schools. I suppose that's really not much of a headline or a surprise. The story begins uh, among its multiple alterations. The coronavirus pandemic of 2020-2021 may be undermining the role of public schools in the U.S. in place since the middle of the 19th century. Well, it is an assessment that's long overdue. A relevant anecdote is Ronald Reagan's famous explanation that he didn't leave the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party left him. Well, across the country this past year, that's been the experience of parents with children in many of the nation's public systems, abandoned by schools they've supported with their tax dollars. Well, after um, And by the way, that was the Wall Street Journal. And after months of ignoring the science on this, President Biden will apparently finally seek to get schools open. What that actually means remains to be seen, but we'll be watching. Well, California's governor has um, 
slipped from the possibility of a recall to a likely recall with a month to go. There are less than 100,000 um, signatures shy of the necessary signatures uh, to get that issue on the ballot. And a Cam- Canadian woman has put her husband on a leash to get around the COVID rules. So the new measure prohibits uh, Quebec residents from leaving their homes between 8 p.m. and 5 a.m., but they provide numerous exceptions, including one for dog owners. The order states that a person who um, must go out so that the dog can go do its business is also allowed to do so within one kilometer or a little more than a half a mile from their home. Sadly, Canada doesn't have much of a sense of humor these days. Each were given a $1,500 fine. So don't try this at home, ladies and gentlemen. Well, better late than never, the Supreme Court of the United States has blocked enforcement of some prejudiced COVID-19 rules for California churches. And Joe Manchin and John Tester curiously flip-flop on their Keystone pipeline thwarting the GOP bid to save it. Top Democrats are pushing massive tax credits in their stimulus plan. Some want them to be permanent. On the other hand, Joe Biden cast doubt on the $15 minimum wage hike in the relief package. And it's been some pushback from the Democrats, but that would reflect more of the Republican view. Meanwhile, Maxine Waters, in anticipation of the impeachment hearing tomorrow, disingenuously tried to walk back some of the violent rhetoric against President Trump. By the way, I understand his uh, defense team is going to use video of Democrats inciting violence as part of their defense. Well, death-obsessed Senate Democrats defeat a bid to protect abortion survivors. Fox News has been sued for $2.7 billion by Smartmatic, canceling the highly rated Lou Dobbs Tonight program. Liz Cheney has become the latest GOP lawmakers who voted to impeach the president, or the former President Trump, to get censured in her home state. She survived a challenge in Washington, but was censured in her home state. Well, daily COVID cases fell below 100,000 for the first time in three months. I think it bears repeating. With regard to national security, an implicit threat of insurrection, Black Lives Matter and Antifa are threatening to burn down Washington. They said so aloud while marching and protesting. We're shocked to learn that the U.N. finds evidence of undeclared nuclear activities in Iran. I know I'm as surprised as you are, but at least the U.S. won't uh, lift sanctions until Iran halts uranium enrichment under the new administration. Meanwhile, Antony Blinken has uh, revoked Mike Pompeo's terror label on Yemen's Houthis. Iran rejoices. Amazon is losing its effort to halt the Alabama Union Drive. Voting begins uh, today, or rather began today. And U.S. goods and services trade deficit increased to $679 billion in 2020. That's the highest since 2008. Well, in the board category of double standards, or rather the broad category, Nancy Pelosi will not, will not be fined for violating her own security rules. I know I'm relieved. President Biden flew home for Super Bowl weekend despite his administration's warnings against travel. But, you know, there are exceptions. And the same publishing company that axed Senator Josh Hawley is going to publish Hunter Biden the broad category of double standards. Well, the U.S. has cut off involvement in Yemen's Houthi-instigated Iran-backed civil war, as I mentioned, and Biden signs uh, an order to ramp up refugee admission to 125,000, which is a great idea during a pandemic. Eleven Iranians were arrested in Arizona after jumping the U.S.-Mexico border, and a perfect storm of events is forcing Border Patrol to release apprehended migrant families directly into the United States. Well, with 49,000 
increase. Payroll barely grew to start uh, 2021, even as the unemployment rate fell to 6.3 percent. Gun sales continue to soar as Democrats take control. And Bank of America allegedly collected data off consumers who might have been at the D.C. riot. Another climate-friendly high-speed rail project from Singapore to Kuala Lumpur has, well, bitten the dust. Johnson & Johnson has requested emergency authorization for a COVID vaccine. And, well, CNN President Jeff Zucker is stepping down at year's end. Bye. Mike Pompeo plans to join the Heritage Foundation. And, of course, that's former Vice President. I said Pompeo. Former Vice President Mike Pence plans to join the Heritage Foundation. And the Canadian Olympic Committee is warning athletes not to criticize China ahead of the 2022 Olympic Games the winter in Beijing. I just want to pause before we get to the heart of the story. Is there going to be a 2022 winter games in Beijing? Anyway, the Canadian Olympic committee is warning athletes not to criticize the host. Some suggest the committee should have boycotted instead, but that's the world we live in. Well, this day in history, 1965, the Supremes record stop in the name of love. It's released by Motown. And I just want you to know as a little girl, We had an upright vacuum cleaner, and I could use that equipment. I could do all the moves. I didn't have the sequin gown, but I knew that song, and I could perform it well. Just saying. By the way, in 1965, what was I? Nine years old, eight years old. 1910, the Boy Scouts of America is incorporated. On this day in history, 19... In the name... uh, 1922, President Warren Harding has a radio installed in the White House. High tech meets Washington, D.C. 1952, Queen Elizabeth II proclaims her ascension to the British throne following the death of her father, King George VI. And of course, she's still there. On this day in history, finally, 2014, in an assertion of same-sex marriage rights, Attorney General Eric Holder announces that same-sex spouses could not be compelled to testify against one another, should be eligible to file for bankruptcy jointly, and are entitled to the same rights and privileges as federal prison inmates in opposite-sex marriages. While the U.S. Supreme Court, in a split decision on Friday night, ruled that houses of worship in California may hold indoor services at 25 percent capacity, giving a partial win to groups fighting to stay uh, the state's coronavirus restrictions. Well, the high court issued the order in two cases where plaintiffs had sued over restrictions meant to slow the spread of the virus. Well, the state will be permitted to restrict singing and chanting during services, will be permitted the court said. Justice Neil Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas reportedly said that they would have lifted all restrictions on churches while the court's three liberal justices dissented. Even if a full congregation singing singing hymns is too risky, California does uh, not explain why even a single masked cantor cannot lead worship behind a mask and a plexiglass shield, Gorsuch wrote, according to Politico, or why even a lone um, musen uh, may not sing the call to prayer from a remote location inside a mosque as worshipers file in. Justice Elena Kagan, in a joint dissent with Justice Stephen Breyer and Sonia Sotomayor, they call the decision armchair epidemiology. After more than three months since the November election and dozens of days in court, former Republican Representative Claudia Tenney is headed back to Congress. A New York State Supreme Court justice ruled on Friday that Oneida County and the State Board of of Elections can certify its final results for New York's 22nd congressional race, which was Tenney had her up by 109 votes over Democratic incumbent Representative Anthony Brindisi. Now, did you know there was a pending (laughs) election outcome? 
well, it's now resolved. While there are likely legal challenges ahead, Brindisi's lawyers are appealing the ruling to the appellate decision, uh, division rather, saying certification should be paused until after a hand count. Uh, the decision means Teeny um, will be seated in the House of Representatives. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Senator Richard Shelby announced today that he will not run for re-election in 2022. He's the third Republican senator to say he will not seek re-election at the end of this current term, along with uh, Rob Portman of Ohio and Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania. At 86, Shelby is currently in his sixth term in office and is the top Republican on the Senate Appropriations Committee. For everything, there is a season, he wrote in his announcement. Thank you again for the honor you have given me, the honor to serve the people of Alabama in Congress for the past 42 years. Well, initially elected in 86 as a Democrat, Shelby switched parties in 94, one day after Republicans won a Senate majority in the midterm elections. Throughout his tenure, he sought to advance Alabama interests, including military manufacturers, Gulf Coast ports. He also helped establish the headquarters of the newly formed U.S. Space Command in the city of Huntsville, announcing today he will not seek re-election in 2022. Meanwhile, Representative Ron Wright, a Texas Republican, passed away on Sunday night after battling the coronavirus, making him the first member of Congress to die after contracting the, the virus. His family and spokesperson confirmed his death uh, this morning. He was 67, had been battling cancer as well as the coronavirus when he died. He survived by his wife, Susan, and three children. He will be remembered as a constitutional conservative, a statesman, not an ideologue, his office said in a statement. Uh, Ron and Susan dedicated their lives to fighting for individual freedom, Texas values, and above all, the lives of the unborn. As friends, family, and many of his constituents will know, Ron maintained his quick wit and optimism under the, uh, until the very end. Despite years of painful, sometimes debilitating treatment for cancer, he never lacked the desire to get up and go to work, to motivate those around him, or to offer fatherly advice. He represented Texas' 6th Congressional District, which includes parts of Arlington and Fort Worth, as well as areas below Dallas. He's been, uh, he had been reelected in November. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court on Friday scheduled several high-profile contests of election lawsuits, including one brought by attorney Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood and the Trump campaign for consideration uh, at this uh, February 19th conference. Well, according to a case listing, the lawsuit includes Sidney Powell's Michigan case, the Trump campaign's Pennsylvania lawsuit, Wisconsin lawsuit, Pennsylvania lawsuit brought by Representative Mike Kelly and Lynn Woods, Georgia case. All the cases allege some form of unlawful election related conduct affecting the results of the election, including expansion of mail in balloting by elections officials, changing rules and contravention of state elections laws, lack of adequate security measures around mail ballots, issues with machine vote tabulation and denial of meaningful access to poll watchers. The Supreme Court declined to grant relief or fast-track the cases as requested in respective petitions uh, petitions filed ahead of the inauguration of President Joe Biden, but will, in retrospect, look at the merits of uh, said cases. 
Apparently, President Trump won two-thirds of election lawsuits where merits were considered. The claim often repeated by the mainstream media, social media content moderators and fact-checkers that lawsuits filed by the president's campaign and Republicans were universally dismissed by the courts is untrue. The findings do not necessarily suggest that if the lawsuits had been decided before Joe Biden was certified as the official winner of the presidential election by um Congress on the 7th that former President Trump would have won the hotly contested election, nor would they necessarily have affected many of the Electoral College votes won by President Biden in the disputed battleground states. In fact, some of the legal victories took place in states like Colorado and Ohio, where the popular vote counts are the respective winners of those states. Biden in Colorado, Trump in Iowa were not close. Of the 22 cases, however, that have been heard by the courts and decided on their merits, Trump and Republicans have prevailed in 50 Again, of 22, according to citizen journalist Don um, Draws Jr., a physicist and environmental advocate from Moorhead City, North Carolina. This means Trump has won two-thirds of the cases fully adjudicated by the courts under the provisos I've just mentioned. Would not have impacted the outcome, but does uh, suggest that there were merits to many of the uh, concerns about the election. Well, the House on Friday passed a budget resolution mounting a key procedural hurdle, clearing a path for Congress to pass President Biden's sweeping $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package without support of Republicans. The Senate passed the budget resolution earlier on Friday in a 51-50 vote along party lines with Vice President Kamala Harris casting the tie-breaking vote. Democrats plan to use a process called budget reconciliation to pass the hefty relief bill, which allows the legislation to be approved and sent to Biden's desk with a simple majority of votes rather than the 60 votes required for normal legislation, although that process is expected to last several weeks because it opens other doors for dissent. President Biden indicated that he's leaning toward pushing the relief bill through without Republican support, pointing to a jobs report showing the economy flagging in January. Well, it's um, news to no one that our country has a two-tiered justice system. Uh, And that it feeds among us a dangerous sense that the game is rigged. Actually, though, our nation increasingly delivers four tiers of unequal justice, rich versus poor, of course, but also left versus right. Well, the legal process has barely begun for capital rioters, but we're already getting a sense of how it's playing out. They'll have the book thrown at them. And after all, most of them support Donald Trump. So that's what's done. But we need only remember back to 2017 to President Trump's inauguration to see an example of the left right tiers at work and the markedly different justice meted out to those leftist rioters and what likely awaits the capital mob. Now, I'm not suggesting by any stretch of the imagination that the capital mob should not be. Um, met with a heavy hand, but that heavy hand should be spread all across the country where equal uh, violence has been the uh, has been the result. John Doherty of BizPack Review writes that video footage that was taken the morning of Trump's inaugural shows black clad mobs occupying streets, smashing storefront windows, attacking police officers, overturning trash cans and generally causing mayhem and protest of what they perceived as a stolen election. Well, the month after the 2017 inauguration, CNN reported that 214 people had been indicted on felony rioting charges, which carry a maximum sentence of 10 years and a fine of up to $25,000. Now, this seemed altogether appropriate for the uh, what uh, it was called the Black Bloc Antifa, who smashed storefronts and bus stops, hammered out the windows of limousines, eventually launched rockets, uh, rocks rather, uh, at the phalanx of police. Six cops were injured that day. 230 rioters were arrested. So far, so good, right? 
wrong. Well, more than two years later, on the 6th of July, 2018, the Associated Press uh, reported that the government had dropped the charges against all inauguration protesters. Now, again, we're talking 2017. Federal prosecutors on Friday moved to drop charges against at least 39 accused of participating in the violent protest on the day of President Donald Trump's inauguration. The motion to dismiss charges by U.S. Attorney's Office seemed uh, seemingly ends in eighteen month the 18-month saga that started with the Justice Department attempting to convict more than 190 people. That effort saw the government facing off against an intensely coordinated grassroots political opposition network that made Washington the focus of a nationwide support campaign, offering free lodging for defendants, legal coordination, and other support. Now, what are the odds that a coordinated grassroots network will convince Joe Biden's social justice department to drop all charges against the Capitol rioters? Well, to be clear, we're not advocating that the pro-Trump rioters walk. Quite the contrary, in fact, as uh, the cherry-picking footage we've all seen from the New Yorkers, uh, New Yorker rather, shows, this is anything but a bunch of middle-aged patriots milling around the Capitol and admiring the artwork. It was something quite different. On the other hand, it wasn't what nervous Nellie representative James Amy Raskin made out of it either to hear her tell it to a sympathetic Jake Tapper, a violent mob broke into the capital of the United States, broke into the capital and came within a hair's breadth of hanging Vice President Pence. They built a gallows outside the capital of the United States. There was an assassination party hunting for Nancy Pelosi. This was an attack on our country, end quote. She wasn't nearly as exercised about the small business owners and other public and private property and individuals who were um, violently attacked throughout the summer of love. Uh, Somehow the fact that she was there and her life was in danger uh, makes this much more uh, concerning than it does in your neighborhood. But I digress. Perhaps uh, Raskin has never heard the term effigy, but one look at the scaffolding Raskin mentions revealed that it was both hastily constructed and non-functional. And for a mob that was ostensibly bent on murdering Speaker Pelosi, they seemed to disband rather peacefully. Well, as for an attack on our country, that perspective is like art entirely in the eye of the beholder. We all know that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, Reuters uh, global news editor Stephen Jukes um, uh, said back in the day. Uh, Were they attackers or did they perceive themselves as defenders? It may or may not be relevant. The point being, um, those who violently attack the freedoms of fellow citizens should be treated equally. Just saying. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Hey, just a quick point of history. The Democrat Party, which has historically lagged behind the Republican Party on the issues of racial justice and diversity. Know your history. I know some of you are fuming at that comment. Finally accomplished something the GOP had already achieved nearly a century ago. Now stay with me. Kamala Harris is the second vice president of color in American history following in the footsteps of GOP trailblazer Charles Curtis, a Native American who served four years as Herbert Hoover's vice president from 1929 to 1933. Now, regrettably, members of the media and others are possessed with an irredeemable infatuation with our current situation, and as such, they would prefer to see Curtis erased from the annals of history altogether, which is in keeping with the record of Native American issues. Well, NPR had to remind its journalists to stop describing Harris as the first person of color to serve as vice president. She is not. Of course, that's not the only historic aspect of her election as vice president. Her husband uh, will be the first second man, or actually is the first second man in American history. Now, many of these achievements, in quotes, could be um, 
rendered moot, however, if President-elect Biden doesn't survive long enough uh, to be inaugurated early next uh, next time around, should he seek re-election. Just a quick point in history. While the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki appears to confirm that President uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter, still holds a stake in a Chinese private equity firm. Now, he's been working to unwind his, inve- his uh, investments, Psaki told a uh, press conference uh, earlier this week when asked about her uh, rather his stake in the Bohai Harvest RST Shanghai Equity Investment Fund Management, commonly known as BHR Partners. Well, the White House press secretary remarks confirmed an early report by the Daily Caller saying the president's son, st- son rather still holds a stake in the Chinese company. She then directed reporters to the younger Biden for further questions. I would certainly point you. He is a private citizen. I would point you to him or his lawyers on the outside on any update. Hunter Biden didn't respond to a request for comment from national media on the question. We'll continue to follow the story. Well, as mentioned, Black Lives Matter protesters and Antifa agitators marched through Washington on the 6th of February. They threatened people as they uh, ate dinner, according to video footage and reports. Burn it down, the demonstrators chanted. We are here tonight because Black Lives Matter, members of the uh, group said, despite Black Lives Mattering, Black people are still dying at the hands of the police, paid for, for by our tax dollars, end quote. Well, other video footage uploaded by independent journalists on the scene showed Antifa types fighting with police officers who were trying to keep them away from restaurants and restaurateurs. Some clad in all black could be seen holding the red and black Antifa flag. At one point, police in Washington, this is D.C., were seen forming lines around outdoor diners to separate them from their fellow citizens, demonstrators and agitators. Well, as we know, impeachment 2.0 is uh, just about to take place. What we need to know, what may surprise you about it, well, what exactly is going to happen when the Senate impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump begins tomorrow? But we don't know for sure, and that's just the point. We're calling the proceeding a trial. Technically speaking, that's accurate. The Constitution, Article 1, Section 3, instructs that the Senate shall have the sole power to trial all impeachment. The House, which has sole power to move for impeachment, has done so, charging the former president with incitement to insurrection. Ergo, it falls to the Senate to try the case. But let's pause on that. If in this pretty extraordinary case, it falls to the Senate to conduct a trial. Now, this notion is largely alien. Thousands of trials occur throughout the United States on a daily basis, yet those are judicial trials. They are ones we know. We're very familiar with the high standards of due process to which they have to adhere, develop over centuries of Anglo-American law. When a criminal case, which is what an impeachment most resembles, but is not, the courts, the uh, independent institution, ensuring that the accused will not be overwhelmed by the government's awesome power and resources. A neutral judge presides. The defendant is presumed innocent and need do nothing to prove he's not guilty. The prosecution bears the full burden of proof. And to further even the playing field, um, the defendant is entitled to counsel and to discover Uh, to discovery of the government's case, including exculpatory uh, evidence in its files. Now, perhaps most significantly for present purposes, the accused is entitled to a fair and impartial jury and may not be found guilty unless the jury unanimously finds the prosecutor to have proved the charge beyond a reasonable doubt. And even if that happens, federal law entitles the accused to multiple rounds of appeals, and if prosecution has somehow transgressed the Constitution or other federal law as they've been interpreted by the federal courts, the conviction 
will be reversed. Now, we're going to be witnessing something a second time around, although under different circumstances, quite different. Well, all that said, if this is your idea of a trial and you were to wander into the United States Senate on Tuesday, you could be forgiven for gasping. Um, We're not in Kansas anymore. Except from the uh, due process standpoint, you would not have arrived in a wonderland, but a dystopia, as one commentator put it. Well, it's not enough to say that Donald Trump is not presumed innocent. The word presumed is utterly out of place in this context. It suggests that there is some set of settled assumptions similar to judicial due process that governs the Senate trial. But there is not. Again, we can't be sure what will happen. In fact, until a couple of weeks ago, we didn't even know who would preside over this trial. There was speculation about whether it would be Chief Justice John Roberts, who last year sat in, uh, sat in rather on the Senate's first Trump impeachment trial. But there will be no sequel for him. The Constitution only calls for a judicial officer, the highest ranking one in the land for impeachment of an incumbent president. Underline incumbent. Trump is out of office. He's a private citizen. So we have a trial without a real judge. Well, not only does this raise profound questions about the integrity of the process, it also provokes a serious constitutional issue about whether the Senate trial is permissible. In fact, 45 Republican senators contend that it is not. Now, this is a political event. So Keep that in mind. Well, the main point of impeachment is to remove an official. That's the main point. And Trump is already a former president who obviously cannot be removed. Now, Democrats and some Republicans point out that the Constitution also makes disqualification from holding office in the future a penalty for impeachment. And thus, the uh, they insist the trial is valid. We, if we have time today, can return to that point. But if that penalty were intended to apply to former presidents, the Trump legal team counters, the framers would have mandated that a real impartial judge preside over the Senate trial. Well, in any event, the presiding officer will now be Senator Patrick Leahy, one of the chamber's most notoriously party, uh, partisan Democrats. Again, this is a partisan event. If you have a vague uh, memory from civics classes that the vice president of the United States is supposed to preside over Senate proceedings, you're recalling correctly. But in this instance, Vice President Kamala Harris opted out because the Biden administration is worried that the Senate trial of a president from an opposite party at a trial with uh, Trump already out of office is, well, overwhelmingly opposed by Republicans across the country, already has the appearance of a vindictive partisan kangaroo court because it is largely a partisan vindictive kangaroo court. Well, having Leahy fill the void in his capacity as the Senate's president uh, pro tempore is not exactly reassuring from the standpoint of fairness, but it is what it is. By the way, I hate that phrase. Um, Here's the rub. You're thinking that because the proceeding is a trial, then fairness must be an absolute requirement, but it is not. As I mentioned, impeachment is not meant to be fair. It's meant to be political. Now, that's... um, That's a feature of the whole thing. Trump's liberty and property are not at stake, which is when due process requires a judicial trial with all the due process trimmings. Impeachment is a political power the Constitution gives to Congress, a political branch in order to strip political authority by removing it or denying it in the future. A public office is not an individual right. It's a political trust. Depriving a person of eligibility for that trust is a political determination in our system. It's not something that calls for political judgment, not judicial due process. Well, let's descend from the abstractions of these uh, concrete political realities. In a Senate trial, there's never an impartial jury. Even when the chief justice presides over such trials, his role is uh, merely ministerial. 
The Senate retains the power to overrule any decision the chief justice makes. He has absolutely no power or authority. Judicial rules and precedents do not apply. They do not control. The presence of a high-ranking judge would simply camouflage the brute fact that the proceeding is political and not legal. So keep that in mind. President Trump was impeached because Democrats control the House. He will be acquitted because they are not enough Republican votes to convict him. It's going. Uh, it's got nothing to do with any legal analysis, and that's what we will witness tomorrow when the Senate takes up the issue of former president, private citizen Donald Trump. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a break for news and traffic at the top of the hour, but we'll be back, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. Coming up in our next couple of segments, we'll share a classic interview with Colin Smith, author of Heaven So Near So Far. You know, I think a lot more about heaven these days when you take a look at the headlines and you realize um, how challenging things are that there's something pretty great to look forward to. Not that I don't want to be faithful in the time that I'm given right now. God's timing is always perfect. Anyway, we'll be talking with him later this hour. Also, I want to remind, uh, remind you that there is an opportunity for a, a cruise with Alistair Begg, Deeper Faith Alaska Cruise 2021. You can join Alistair Begg and Laura Story on the Deeper Faith Alaska tour. And I've had the opportunity to cruise with Alistair Begg before. Oh, what a great uh, leader of that kind of event. You can dine with new friends, explore beautiful parts of Alaska, enjoy a refreshing experience and teaching from Alistair Begg, from Truth for Life and music from Michael O'Brien and Laura Story. Register today at kpdq.com for all the important details. Sounds like it's going to be a great trip. Well, we were talking before the top of the hour about uh, former President Donald Trump's impeachment. Well, apparently his lead impeachment defense attorney, Bruce Castor, said that during the upcoming trial in the Senate, he's going to use video clips of top Democrats allegedly inciting violence. He said the defense team's going to adhere to the strategy outlined in the brief but submitted to the uh, Senate earlier this month. The defense team argued in the brief that the Constitution Excuse me. Constitution requires that a person actually hold office to be impeached and that Trump was exercising his First Amendment right to free speech to question the results of the November election. The impeachment against the president goes against the Constitution because Trump doesn't hold any office after he left the White House. The lawyers will argue. Castor revealed that during the impeachment trial scheduled to, to start tomorrow, the defense team is also going to use some video clips of top Democrats encouraging violence. Uh, he spoke, uh, spoke to Laura Ingram on Fox News and said, I think I can count on that. If my eyes look a little red to the viewers, it's because I've been looking at a lot of videos the last couple of days. We noticed that some Democratic uh, Democrats rather nationwide cheered when rioters were burning down the cities and attacked the federal law enforcement officers last summer in the aftermath of the death of George uh, Floyd, saying that many in Washington, Democrats, using uh, really the most inflammatory rhetoric as possible to use, uh, he said, but uh, here when you have the president of the United States give a speech and say you should peacefully make your way, uh, thinking, uh, I'm confused here, peacefully make your thinking known to the people of Congress, he's all of a sudden the villain, so you better be careful what you wish for, end quote. Well, sorry about that. Well, during his uh, speech on the 6th of January, which later became the focus of the impeachment against him, the president told his supporters, I know that everyone uh, here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard, end quote. And that's the direct quote. It's unclear which Democrats' remarks uh, the Trump team will cite during the impeachment trial, but they certainly will be there. Amongst the BLM protests, Representative Ayanna Presley said there should be unrest in the streets, making the phone call 
calls, send the emails, show up, she said in an interview on, uh, with MSNBC's uh, AM Joy. There needs to be unrest in the streets for as long as there's unrest in our lives. And unfortunately, there's plenty to go around, end quote. We'll find out tomorrow what specific references will be made. However, well, Leslie Marshall, who is a Democrat, says, hey, impeachment of the president, uh, the former president must proceed. And she offers reasons from her perspective why that's the case. She says that Donald Trump has been impeached twice. Now the second Senate impeachment trial against him will commence. The one article of impeachment charges him with incitement and insurrection over the violence that took place in the Capitol. Donald Trump engaged in high crimes and misdemeanors by inciting violence. The impeachment articles goes on to say that during an address to his supporters, he willfully made statements that in context encouraged and foreseeably resulted in the lawless actions at the Capitol. Well, she says uh, many believe for numerous reasons that the trial should not go forward, but I strongly disagree. And here are five reasons why. And we've talked a lot about why the Republicans think this whole thing is unconstitutional. However, what are the Democrats saying? She says, first of all, protocol. The Constitution is very clear about how impeachment proceedings should be handled. Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution states that the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. Impeachment proceedings, the House of Representatives charges an official of the federal government by approving, by majority vote, articles of impeachment. So the Senate sits in the high court impeachment in which senators consider evidence, hear witnesses, and so on. Well, there's no question about the procedure, but she says it's constitutional and there is precedent. Now, again, this goes to the question of timing. The fact that he is now a private citizen, some are arguing, suggests that this is irrelevant. She says it's constitutional and there is precedent. Uh, she writes that those who argue that it is unconstitutional to have this trial because pre- because uh, Trump no longer presides as president and is a private citizen or that there is no president are wrong. She says Trump was impeached by the House seven days before he left office. The Constitution clearly states that the Senate has the sole power to trial all impeachment. All is the key word in this sentence. Thus, the Constitution says the Senate's authority extends to every constitutionally proper impeachment, which Trump's second impeachment clearly was. She arguing he was in office at the time that the House impeachment impeached him rather. She goes on, you don't stop the process because you think you know the outcome. As for precedent, William Belknap, Ulysses S. Grant, Secretary of War, resigned hours before he was impeached by the House. The Senate held a trial even though he had left office and was acquitted. As the House states in its case against Trump, a president must answer comprehensively for his conduct in office from his first day in office through his last which has now come and gone. She also argues that this is exactly what impeachment was designed for. In the Federalist Papers, Alexander Hamilton wrote that impeachment varies from civil to criminal courts in that it strictly involves the misconduct of public men or, in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. Our founders so feared potential abuse from the executive branch that they made impeachment a part of the Constitution even before they fully defined the presidency. She also says we need to consider that moving ahead, even if you know the outcome, is the right thing to do. You don't need crystal ball to see that 50-50 Senate, whose members typically vote along party lines, and with 45 Republicans recently voting that the trial is unconstitutional, getting the two-thirds vote to convict Trump and prevent him from running for office is unlikely. Thus, some argue the trial shouldn't move forward. Well, that's ludicrous. She suggests in criminal cases, even when defense attorneys acknowledge overwhelming evidence against their clients, they push forward. Of course, she's now referring to a criminal case rather than a political case. But she goes on to say, providing the best defense they can. You don't stop the process because you think you know the outcome. And you certainly don't stop the process because you fear it might anger 
uh, some people and prompt more violence. If we do that, the rioters win and justice loses. Sadly, the rioters have already largely won across the country and justice has lost, but I digress. Finally, she says it sends a message. The First Amendment does not allow one to yell fire in a crowded theater, and that is exactly what Trump is accused of doing prior to the Capitol Hill riot on January 6th. If no action is taken, then we, the United States, through our leaders, are excusing such behavior without punishment. That cannot be allowed to happen. We need to send a message to future leaders that words have serious consequences and that true leaders must lead by example and put country over party, which is a rather interesting way to end the article, given the fact that this is a political process in which party politics pretty much reigns and dictates what's uh, what's happening and what's going to happen. Anyway, it all starts tomorrow and we'll follow the story, the uh, trial, if you will, as it progresses, proceeds or doesn't. We're not really sure. Um, which will be the case. Well, the big question now is, since uh, Donald Trump is a private citizen, can the Senate stop him from running for president again? Now, Trump is already out of office. Democrats are hoping they can keep him from ever running again. But can they? Former uh, President uh, Trump's second impeachment trial, which starts tomorrow, will uh, perhaps answer the question. Maybe not. Well, the Senate has never heard an impeachment trial for a president who's no longer in office. Democrats support the claim, as I've already outlined. Republicans oppose it. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust or profit in the United States. That's what the Constitution says. Well, this certainly allows for the possibility that Trump could be kept from seeking future office, but it would not be automatic upon conviction. Well, Senate rules state that if the necessary two thirds of the senators uh, present uh, vote to convict, the subject is immediately removed from office. That's already been done. His office expired. And a second vote may be held if they choose to determine whether the convictional official will be disqualified from holding any future office. Only a simple majority is needed for that vote. Well, the Senate has previously convicted eight officials, all judges, and only three were barred from holding office again. Of course, in the current matter, there was the question of whether a former official could even be tried in the Senate since they're already out of office. And this has happened before. In 1876, impeachment of the former Secretary of State War William Belknap, I mentioned earlier, had resigned. And, well, you know the rest. Well, while that um, jurisdiction is not clearly laid out in the Constitution, there is some support for it. President John Quincy Adams once said, I hold myself so long as I have the breath in my body, amiable or rather amenable to the impeachment of this house for everything I did during the time I held any public office, end quote. Well, the British system, which preceded and inspired, of course, the American one, allowed for the impeachment of any civilian. That is not to mean that the American system would automatically follow suit, however, as American impeachments already differ from the British by requiring a two-thirds vote to convict. Well, for President Trump's impeachment, the Senate voted uh, last week to, on a motion rather to declare the trial unconstitutional due to Trump being out of office. That motion failed. The Senate voted 55 to 45 that it indeed has the power to hear the case. Well, given that 45 senators voted against holding the trial in the first place, it appears pretty unlikely that President Trump will be convicted. Should this happen, however, he would be subject to a permanent bar from office if the Senate then voted to do that. So that may give you some, I don't know, understanding and context of what's going to happen tomorrow. We'll certainly follow the story. Up next, we'll hear from Colin Smith, Heaven So Far, So Near, the story of Judas Iscariot, Christian. We'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. It read, I came as close to heaven as a person can be without getting in. So begins the compelling story of Judas Iscariot in the book that we're going to be talking about, Heaven So Near, So Far written by author and pastor Colin Smith. In Heaven So Near So Far, the story of Judas Iscariot, uh, Pastor Smith stays true to Scripture as he takes readers on a journey through the three years Judas spent as a close disciple of Jesus, culminating in his ultimate betrayal of the Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Easter approaches, he explains that the story of Judas Iscariot serves as a reminder for Christians to never give up on their faith. And although Judas was a disciple of Jesus, he turned away as soon as it became costly and took another path. This comes as a warning to us as we see a growing trend in our own culture of people who at one time identified themselves as Christian and were giving up on the faith they and have given up on the faith they once professed in Jesus. Well, Colin Smith is senior pastor of the Orchard Evangelical Free Church in the suburbs of Chicago. His preaching ministry is shared nationwide through the daily radio program Unlocking the Bible and through his website. He joins us today to talk about his uh, latest book, Heaven So Near, So Far, The Story of Judas Iscariot. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgina, it's a delight to be with you. Thank you. Now, it might be surprising uh, that a pastor would choose to write on the life of Judas Iscariot, but you wrote, you chose this subject, and you wrote about his life, a firsthand account for a specific audience. Tell us what compelled you to write his story and to whom. Well, I think that uh, every Christian uh, knows someone who once professed faith in Jesus Christ and in some way has veered away from that faith or is close to uh, abandoning the faith that they once professed. I certainly have folks that I I love and pray for regularly like that in, in my own life. Um, You know, someone who's brought up in a Christian home and now shows no interest in Christianity or someone who has uh, served the Lord, extended themselves in serving the Lord in one way or another and then has grown cold and and no longer expresses any interest in following Jesus. So I I wanted to be able to to speak uh, to folks who are finding difficulty with their faith and to commend um, uh, the invitation to follow Jesus Christ because it is worth whatever it costs and it's worth whatever diffi- overcoming whatever difficulty we have in order to do that. As I mentioned a moment ago, you stay true to Scripture, and yet we know very little about Judas Iscariot except for what we read in the Gospels. Uh, you fill in a story that really walks us through the ministry that he walked alongside Jesus in and uh, gives us a context that we may not have thought about. I know I've read the, the Gospels many, many times over the years of my uh, following Jesus, and yet as I read your book, I thought about Judas in a bit of a different way. How did you determine what course you were going to take, beginning with the notion that uh, he declares in this uh, first person account uh, that he was really motivated by ambition that in your first chapter seems fairly common and uh, innocent in a in a sense yeah, well, I, I think one of the things that really struck me in immersing myself in the story of Judas Georgine was that he really is. Um, uh, a person much closer to me than I might have yes. liked to think, you see. I mean, he went out and he preached the gospel. He was given authority to cast out demons. Um, uh, he followed Jesus up close and personal for three years, and yet he makes this wretched choice, and he gives up on the Savior that he's followed. So I think it's easy to dismiss Judas as a kind of a, uh, almost a cartoon character, a kind of villain um, in, in a play or in a drama, but he's much closer to us than that. 
And uh, as I began tracing the references to Judas that you've referred to in the Gospels and also um, the broader statements about the disciples of whom he was was one, just putting the pieces together um, became very compelling to me. I mean, think of this. Along with the other disciples, he, he heard the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He would have distributed the uh, loaves and the fish when Jesus fed 5,000. He would have been in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm. Well, already said he's been out on a missions trip and been a proclaimer of the gospel. So all of these things, I think, bring him much closer to, um, uh, to the reality of our experience than uh, uh, the dismissive way in which we might uh, kind of uh, uh, regard him as a, as a villain um, otherwise. Yeah, and I, I think that's what I sensed as I read it as well, that he was much more similar to me than dissimilar. And that was yep. that was a little, um, it made me feel uneasy, <laughs> recognizing yep. that one can walk closely with Jesus and yet make a decision, a fateful decision to walk away, despite having had that close relationship. You begin by describing um, how Jesus identified Judas Iscariot to be one of his disciples and kind of the tension of waiting to see if his name was going to be called and wanting to be recognized, wanting to be known, which is very common to all of us. We want our lives to be meaningful. And when Jesus selects him, it, it really begs the question, here we have Judas Iscariot. God knows his character. He knows what this man is going to do, and yet he's chosen by Jesus. And Judas is not only flattered, but I think he's grateful to be counted among Uh, the 12. Yeah, that's right. He's always the last to be mentioned in every list of the 12. So, you know, anyone who's ever had the the school uh, 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 the, the, the school ch- uh, child experience of kind of waiting to be picked for a team and uh, being the last to be picked. I think that was Judas' experience. Uh, after the others were named, he seems to have been the last to be named. I'm sure he was very glad to have made the cut, as it were, <laughs> and to be there in, in that group. And uh, he experienced the same things as the other disciples experienced. But there was, I think, a double-mindedness about him right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And the Bible says, you know, a double-minded person is unstable in all of their ways. And I think we see that in Judas. You see it particularly, for example, when Mary pours out that very costly ointment over the head of Jesus and Judas uh, criticizes her for this because it was too costly, you know, and it's fascinating. It's the cost that made what Mary did wrong in the eyes of Judas, but it was the same cost that made what Mary did right in her own eyes because she saw Jesus as of supreme value. Judas did not see Jesus as of supreme value. It seems that he therefore uh, wanted to attach Jesus to another agenda Uh, Money certainly seems to have been important to him. He was stealing from the bag. But whenever we try to, whenever a person tries to use Jesus and attach Jesus to another agenda, at the end of the day, the other agenda always wins. And at the end of the day, there's a betrayal of Jesus that uh, is at the end of that line. Mm. One other thing I'll mention before we continue on in the story, it was interesting to me um, how he comments in the book, uh, Heaven So Near So Far, on the selection of the other disciples. Why on earth would he choose him? And he he goes into some detail on why this (laughs) disciple shouldn't, you know, match. Matthew, why on earth would you choose Matthew? Why would you choose Paul? And somehow seems him, sees himself as supremely qualified and sees the shortcomings of others, failing to recognize the, the, um, uh, the moat in his own eye in this uh, process of being selected by Jesus to be a disciple. 
Yeah, you know, I, I, I really worked on, on, on that point from the, uh, uh, the profound truth that sin really does have a blinding effect. Um, it, it, it takes away our own awareness of ourselves. And it's very interesting to me that in, in the Last Supper, when Jesus says that one of uh, the disciples is going to betray him, the other disciples don't say, oh, is it Judas? They all say, is it I? So they all had a sense that they had it in them. They had the capacity mm. in them to be the betrayer of the Lord Jesus. And that's actually a sign of the spiritual light that was in their lives. Judas seems to have wandered um, through his various experiences without much real knowledge of himself. Jesus says to the disciples, one of you is a devil. Um, Judas seems to have no awareness of the work that the enemy was doing in his own soul. We're talking about the book Heaven So Near So Far, the story of Judas Iscariot, very well written. And in it, not only do I learn something of uh, the man that is uh, despised in Scripture as having betrayed Jesus, but I learned a great deal about myself and how vulnerable we can be if we are not uh, all in when it comes to following Jesus and recognizing our own need for him and our own shortcomings. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back to continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're talking about the book, Heaven So Near, So Far, The Story of Judas Iscariot. Pastor Colin Smith is the author. He's senior pastor of the Orchard Evangelical Free Church in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. His preaching ministry is shared through the daily radio program, Unlocking the Bible, and through his website, unlockingthebible.org, as well. This is the story of Judas. It's a firsthand account. It's true to the biblical account in Scripture, but helps us to perhaps not only better understand and, uh, Judas, but better under our, understand ourselves and our desperate need for Christ. Um, you, in the third chapter, you title it um, uh, Frustration, and you begin to write about uh, how Judas Iscariot, who, although he's um, participating in and walking alongside Jesus in his ministry, begins to exhibit some frustration, which again exposes that double-mindedness that you mentioned a few moments ago. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think particularly this uh, relates to uh, to money. We know from John's Gospel that uh, Judas was taking money out of the bag. And that is uh, told to us in the context of this uh, incident we spoke about a few moments ago where Mary pours the costly ointment over Jesus and Judas objects because of the cost. So money clearly was a big issue um, uh, in regards to um, the agenda that Judas had. So I kind of project back from that to some of the people who had big resources that uh, met with Jesus and with the disciples, the rich young ruler being one, and uh, uh, I, I'm sure Judas, as the treasurer, must have been salivating at the thought that the rich young ruler might become a disciple. And Jesus, instead of saying, give us all the money uh, and come on board and uh, trust it to Judas, he says, uh, no, you've got to, to, to sell it all and give to the poor. I would have thought that was very frustrating to someone with Judas' agenda and probably similar with Zacchaeus. And then he just reached bursting point when it comes to Mary pouring the ointment over Jesus. He doesn't think Jesus is worth that much. He thinks that uh, the money is worth more. And that's an indication of the double-mindedness that's at the, uh, at the root of, uh, uh, of his problem. He, um, again, in the first-hand account of Judas Iscariot, it's, it 
uh, certainly is true to Scripture, but does take some license in filling in some of the uh, the details that are, are not absolutely clear in Scripture as we're walking along with Jesus, who is walking alongside um, uh, Judas, or rather the other way around. And Judas is then confronted with a decision. Um, I suppose the question, who do you say that I am, was one that he himself had to answer at some point. And in your fifth chapter, decision is the... Uh, is the title of that chapter in which he writes about the, the four days that uh, he thought carefully about his position, which I think, again, illustrates that double-mindedness and uncertainty that what Jesus was selling, um, Judas was, was going to buy. Yeah, that's right. And I try to make the point throughout the book that's very clear in the Gospels that all the way down the line, Judas is making clear decisions for which he has responsibility. The, the, the Gospels consistently uh, refer to, I mean, him taking money out the bag. That's a decision that he makes, and he has moral responsibility for it. He goes to the chief priests and the elders. He takes money. He walks out of the Lord's Supper. So I think, you know, it, it's very easy to get the idea that Judas was some kind of automaton who was, uh, you know, pre-programmed to do certain things. The, the New Testament makes it very clear that um, uh, the outcome of his life was the result of a set of very deliberate choices. And so the story really is a warning to us. Um, Judas shows that he was not one of Christ's sheep by the fact that he no longer listened to his voice and no longer followed him. We want to take a very different path from the path that Judas uh, took. And of course, Peter is the contrast. Peter failed uh, terribly also, blaspheming and denying the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was restored because he didn't give up on Jesus, and Judas did, and that's the heart of the story that calls us never to give up on Jesus. In the chapter, once again titled Decision, Judas reflects on the Last Supper, as we refer to it, in which Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He makes Mm -hmm. reference to the fact that uh, you are clean when there's a kind of a controversy, and Peter says, you know, you should never wash my feet, and we we remember those details. But Judas um, never sees that opportunity, uh, seizes the opportunity to see that Jesus has looked into my heart when he says that not all of you are clean. He doesn't see that perhaps he's referring to him. Uh, instead, he's he's more interested in hiding the uh, the plan that he's already made to betray Jesus with the uh, uh, with the rulers, and uh, still doesn't recognize himself as being on the edge of of the abyss. Essentially, yeah, that's right. And I'm struck by the fact, Georgine, that Jesus just keeps reaching out to him in love. Mm-hmm. And as you describe the washing of Judas' feet, can you imagine that? Here's Christ coming that close to him, and he's carrying this unconfessed sin of having stolen out the bag, and of course having taken the money ready to betray Jesus. There's all that secret. There were, there were many opportunities for him to come into the open, for him to confess, and yet he refuses to do that. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus reaches out to him and says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? It's as if Jesus is saying to him, even there, why are you doing this now? Why not take your stand with the disciples? There's grace for you. And that's the message that I want to come over from this book, that where there may be pressure on folks for one reason or another to walk away from Jesus, there's nothing good can come from that. There's always grace and mercy from Jesus Christ reaching out to us and inviting us to draw near and come back to him. 
You write in this same chapter title decision, as I ate the bread, I knew that I had crossed another line, but I was strengthened by a determined resolve that seemed to come on me at a critical moment in my journey. I had felt it first when I had uh, gone to the priests and I felt it again as I took the morsel of bread from Jesus. Looking back, I now see that Satan launched a relentless assault on my soul. If that makes you feel sorry for me, please spare me your pity. Satan seeks the destruction of every follower of Jesus and he assaults on me and his assaults on me were no different from what he attempts with any other disciple. Um, Satan can only enter a person's life when that person opens the door. And again, we see him at a crossroads. Yeah, that's right. And and uh, Judas very definitely had opened the door for all the reasons that we've just uh, referred to. Yeah, the, the scriptures say, I think, on three occasions that Satan entered into him. And the important thing there is that Satan gained an entrance into his life because the door of his life was opened through his continuing uh, secrecy and unconfessed um, uh, sin. And of course, um, the comment that I, I, I make there about the enemy attacking a Christian, the New Testament very clear that he's like a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour and therefore uh, for that very reason we have to be on our guard and we have to walk closely with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As we move through the story again uh, Judas Iscariot uh, telling his own uh, story he uh, comes back with the temple guards and he's surprised having spent three years with Jesus he's surprised that Jesus identifies himself readily when they come to, uh, to take him. For our listeners who haven't read the book but are familiar with the scriptures, um, does, is there a point at which Judas expresses regret? And when um, he sees Jesus under this new circumstance as he's betraying him, uh, describe how Judas rationalizes himself and at what point he recognizes that I have crossed a line but fails to repent to return to what he had known in that life with Jesus. Yeah, well, the scripture is very clear that um, it was when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned that he comes to a realization of the wrongness of what he has done. So I, I assume that when he saw that Jesus was condemned, that he must therefore have been somewhere in the crowd when uh, Pontius Pilate brought Jesus out after he'd been scourged and said, behold the man, and then condemned him to be crucified. And uh, your, your word is, is right, Georgine. He has regret but he doesn't have repentance, and there's a huge yes. difference. Regret looks backwards, and it merely condemns self. Repentance looks forward and upwards, and finds grace and mercy from Jesus. And that's the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter knew what repentance was, and that's why he was restored and wonderfully forgiven and had a future. Judas, well, he just went down the path of regret, and that led him to give up on Jesus. And that's the tragedy of his life. And his story, of course, reminds us that there is a hell to shun and there's a heaven to gain. And we can learn from the examples of those who are saying to us, this is not the way, don't walk in it, as much as we can learn from those who are examples of the way that we should walk. And we're just about out of time, but for the listener here today who feels like Judas did, that he had so betrayed Jesus that regret is where they reside today without recognizing the offer of, of restoration through repentance. What do you say to that listener today? Oh, well, I just say don't stop with regret. Don't stay with self-condemnation. That will never get you anywhere. There's no future in that at all. There is a future for you in repentance. And what repentance means is that beyond regret, you look to Jesus Christ, who you may have failed in multiple ways, 
and you put your trust in him as the one who has grace that is able to restore you and bring you back. Don't be like Judas. Be like Peter. There's no future on the Judas path, but there's a great future for you in the hands of Jesus Christ. The book, Heaven So Near, So Far, The Story of Judas Iscariot. Pastor Smith, thank you so much for talking with us today. A real pleasure. God bless you, Georgie. Bye-bye. Really well done. Uh, I think you would uh, enjoy it, and it's uh, very revealing as you read it as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Now, as you can imagine, being the caregiver to my 90-year-old mother, um, my primary concern during this COVID-19 season has been to protect and defend her to follow trends and make sure I'm doing everything that I can uh, to limit her exposure to COVID-19. So far, so good. She's healthy. She's well. She's contented. She's a follower of Jesus, so she's joyful and is uh, enduring this storm as much as possible. Now, I have to admit, part of the reason for that is that we are in the same household. We have the opportunity to fellowship together, so that has been a great benefit for those who are isolated. This has been a tremendous challenge, so I am so grateful Uh, to the Lord that she is doing well. Well, as you know, we've learned that those uh, 80 and over in the state of Oregon are supposed to be eligible to sign up for COVID vaccine. Now, one of my concerns is whether or not, given her as an individual and her particular health issues, whether or not she's a good candidate for COVID-19 vaccination. So I'm in the process of trying to connect with her doctor to find out if he would recommend she move forward, not just based on her age, but based on other factors as well. But one of the things I'm noticing is that there is extraordinary frustration, and that's a phrase that the Oregonian used to describe many seniors here in the state of Oregon uh, who are left guessing on how to sign up for the COVID-19 vaccination. So currently, seniors 80 years and older are eligible for the vaccine. That's starting today. Well, as of uh, last week, seniors can't make online appointments through the state's online portal, and that has been an ongoing frustration. Well, the Oregon Health Authority is leaving it up to seniors, 80 and older, to figure out how to sign up, although I think they've tried to make some um, steps toward making it a bit clearer. But seniors who are 80 plus are eligible to get the vaccine starting today, but whether there's going to be any doses for them on that day isn't altogether clear. In the meantime, trying to register is an exercise in frustration. And I appreciated that the Oregonian published sort of a how-to to help walk them through that. So you might want to check that out online. Andrew Thien, writing for Oregon Live Online or the Oregonian, provided some uh, insight. And he points out that starting today, Oregon is allowing widespread vaccination for people 80 and older. Uh, Oregon's one of the latest states, one of the last states in the country to move toward vaccinating seniors, which is a bit puzzling, a a fact that was chronicled by the Oregonian uh, for weeks. Oregon doesn't have, uh, or I should say, does have one of the nation's lowest infection rates, though. Um, Well, on Friday of last week, the state health leader and um, Governor Brown warned that next week could feature chaos. We've gotten quite familiar with that. And that the state still suffers from inadequate vaccine supply to meet what will be increased demand as seniors become eligible. Oregon isn't vaccinating all the seniors at once. Instead, they're opting for a phase-in approach over several weeks. Uh, Who's eligible today? Well, people aged 80 and older. Um, The uh, following week, uh, Oregonians aged 75 and older. The following week, 70 and older. Uh, And the following week, people 65 and older. And I would love to see our elders first and then maybe see that curve a little bit slower, but that's just me. How quickly can I get an appointment 
same day, a week? Well, that's a tough question, we're being told. It could take several weeks to book an appointment, let alone actually get the vaccination. Others may be, well, more fortunate. Much will uh, depend on where you live, how many other seniors are eligible at the same time, how quickly you navigate the online system. So if you have elderly parents, relatives, friends, churchmen, uh, come alongside them and help them navigate what is a very confusing system. Now, why are some senior friends already vaccinated? Well, because they live in less populated counties that moved quickly through the 1A population and educators uh, and made them uh, uh, making them eligible that those, these are all factors we're being told that could make a difference. Where do I go to get vaccination uh, vaccinated rather when the time comes? Well, if you're in Portland in the metro area, chances are the appointment will be at the Oregon Convention Center. The mass clinic is centrally located um, and it's being run by the Oregon Health Science University, Kaiser Permanente and Providence. What about my doctor's office? Our pharmacy are those places I can trust. Can I eventually go there? And again, it depends um, how do I try to schedule my appointment? Well, you go to covidvaccine.oregon.gov, covidvaccine.oregon.gov. Um, try to schedule an appointment if you're eligible. Uh, in the center of the page, you're going to find a link that says vaccine eligibility. So you can you know, navigate through that. Then let's get started. If you don't have a computer, how else can you do it? You can call 211 what about texting? Senior can also text um, OR COVID, OR COVID uh, to the number 898211. Uh, what about email? There's also an email option. And again, um, how long will it take to vaccinate all the seniors? Well, that's an excellent question. Of course, we don't have an answer to that either. According to census records, there are about 767,000 Oregonians aged 65 and older. It's going to take several weeks to get through all the Oregonians who want an appointment. Uh, state leaders on Friday said that they estimate 75% of all seniors, teachers, and 1A eligible Oregonians who want a shot will have received their first dose by April 1st, which it seems to me is incredibly optimistic given what we've seen here in the state of Oregon over the weeks and months of COVID-19. Now, having said all of that, I don't want to minimize the tremendous challenge that the governor, health authorities, healthcare workers, uh, those who are trying to navigate the vaccinations and getting them where they need to be to the people who need them most. I don't want to underestimate or downplay the tremendous challenge of trying to navigate all of this. So let me just say that I'm grateful for those who are, are working toward that end. It is frustrating. There have been a number of miscalculations, underestimations. Uh, but I also want to acknowledge that um, the challenge is tremendous. So I hope you'll join me in praying for those people making these kinds of decisions that we can somehow navigate through all of this in the most efficient way, regardless of what's happened in the past. There's a lot yet to be done that we are grateful to those who have put their um, nose to the grindstone, if you will, as we move forward and that we're praying for them fervently for their own safety and protection and that God would give them wisdom that exceeds their capacity on their own. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. I'm so grateful you chose to spend part of your day here on The Georgine Rice Show. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. 
And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.